Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now at this special time of year, we have a very special guest today. Alice Leahy has been taking care of the most vulnerable people who live on the streets of Dublin for the last 40 years and more. Alice runs what is now the Alice Leahy Trust, which is a drop-in centre providing food, advice, assistance with hygiene and health to people who are without homes. Most of all, Alice and those who work with her provide human warmth and comfort to their visitors, something that I think is at a premium in today's world. When many who live in the streets are rendered invisible as most of society rushes past from A to B. Beyond her work, Alice has also been a long-time contributor to public debate and, in my opinion, she does it through a prism that combines compassion, practicality and that much undervalued concept, common sense. Alice, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mick. And happy Christmas to you. And many happy returns. Alice, I'll come to you in a minute about Christmas, but for the extraordinary times that we live in, could you tell me first how the pandemic has affected your centre and and the people who normally visit there? Well, Mick, I suppose it's interesting because little did we think this time last year we'd be Zooming. So that has affected all of us. Now, the people who come in to us, I was thinking of it the other day, when I'm hearing about people worried that they can't get into restaurants and they can't get into pubs. But the reality is for the people we're working with, they are isolated through all of the year. And it's not just at Christmas time. I suppose it has also affected us in the sense that we have had to change the way we work. Uh, We had to close for a short time early in the year And of course, mindful of the the great work of Tony Houlihan and and his colleagues, we have to stick rigidly to the the restrictions. So it did mean that we've had to cut back on the numbers of people we have coming in. But one of the things that happened during this year was more accommodation became available for people who wanted it. But many people who are homeless as we always say, they're outsiders and they didn't avail of and don't want to avail of of the accommodation. So what we do now, I have wonderful colleagues. Now, without them, uh, it wouldn't be possible to do our work. They put a lot of work into planning for when we would open up and people's temperature is taken at the gate. We then get people in and we actually have to supervise them washing their hands because, as you know, and we all know, people don't uh, spend the amount of time that Luke O'Neill is often describing to us what we should do. And then we take, everyone has a mobile phone, or a lot of people have, so we take phone numbers. But what it has done, in fact, it has helped us to give more time to the people who should be getting the time. And the people who, when we opened up then, of course, it was interesting when we opened up, because suddenly a lot of people we knew, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, who had ended up maybe getting work, moving on uh, with their lives, 
we're back homeless again. And some of them started coming back to us out of tents and cars. And one man came up to us from the Midlands. He was sofa surfing in the Midlands. And where he was staying, the man who owned the place said he would have to get out. And he had a hospital appointment and he had an appointment with the council. So he got on the bus and came up to us for a shower and a change of clothes uh, to keep that appointment. And he has been up to us about three times since. Alice, just sorry, to, it's just something you said there that's very interesting. And as we know, people can go through a bad patch in life. And as you say, they, they might end up on the streets, and as, as you described it, and then manage to move on, get work, get accommodation. But you're saying that your, your experience in recent years, that a lot of people or some people who would have been fortunate enough to be able to get their lives together in that respect, that 10, 15 years down the line, as a result of our changed circumstance, I suppose, you find them coming back again now? Yes, and we're not into dependency, you know, we're very much in faith. We wish we hadn't to be there and that we could shut down. And that was one of the things when we were opening up, we said, well, now, should we open up or should we allow the state get on and provide these services? But the reality is that is never going to happen. But the first couple who came into us when we opened up and incidentally, we couldn't do our work without the goodwill and support of people from all over the country. And when we knew we were closing, we sent them emails and then they contacted us throughout the period to know how we were, were we safe, were we well. And that, that really was very supportive and very encouraging. But the first couple who arrived in, uh, they were sleeping in a tent and the, the man had got a job, but he lost his job and they lost their accommodation. So he was out in a tent, but he knew that we were there. And then a short time after his visit to us, he, they came back about three times and then they came in to thank us and say that they had got something sorted out in their life. So I suppose all of that uh, and so much more, you know, that, that is so encouraging. The interesting thing there to Alice is, and I think perhaps some people don't appreciate, and I think you've been somebody who, who's highlighted this a number of times, that when we talk about homelessness today, that there are effectively two issues. One is those who simply can't, largely for economic circumstances, get their own home. They're on a waiting list, they're on HAP, they're living in hotel rooms. Awful stuff in which... There's mental health issues, there's developmental problems with children in that environment and all. But then you have what perhaps, I don't know what would be the correct way of putting it, you might say a more traditional homeless type of people who are people who perhaps have mental health difficulties, addiction difficulties, and it, they need more than a roof, notwithstanding the housing crisis. And would I be right in saying that that those type of people would constitute a lot of the people who come into trust? Yes, and I think you know I think that's a very important issue. And recently there was the Lord Mayor's task force, and uh, I was asked to go to it. I think I was asked to go because a city councillor heard me on news talk doing a walk about Dublin, and and she passed it on to the other members. So I was invited, and I made this point very clearly. Because the whole emphasis now is on bricks and mortar and money. Now, certainly there are people, and it's shocking 
to see young families or people struggling. Very often there are people who are, are in poorly paid jobs or insecure jobs and they can't get accommodation and their problem would be solved by housing. And you see, we have really no social housing going on. We have, um, you know, they're not building the houses. And, and incidentally, a countryman of your own, was it Walsh was his name? I don't know the man from Adam, but wasn't it so good to see that family a business it's in Castle Island, yeah. In Castle Island. So, and, and they were saying that was it 150 euro. Now, why should it, why can't the state do that? Because they have stopped building social housing and they're offloading that responsibility to the NGO sector. Now, the reality is, I don't know, has anyone done any research into, is it cheaper uh, for the NGO sector to build houses? Or would it be cheaper for the state to build them? And I think that's a very important question to ask, because sometimes it costs as much money to support the NGO body building those houses as it does, as it would for the state just to get on and do it. But I think that's a question for another day. And another aspect to that is, and there are figures to suggest that the state can build social housing a lot cheaper than when it's done in the private sector and then sold back for social, we call it social housing, it's really public housing in that respect. Just to let listeners know who may not be familiar with it, you made a reference there to a Mr Walsh from Castle Island. That was in relation to a story of uh, this man and his wife. They run a business there, a printing business in Castle Island and they acquired some land Built how they've built one house. The first family moved in. They intend to build, I think, four or five more at least. These houses they're building for their employees at cost price because a lot of those employees in the current market ca- cannot afford to build their own homes. They're given for cost price, and I think the only stipulation they have is something like that: the employee would pledge to stay with the company for ten or twelve years, and. Certainly, if the building of houses any indication of the company sounds like a, a very good employer, one way or the other. But that that speaks, Alice, I think, to something that was around. Now, it was a very different time. We had the patrician sort of employer like Guinness and that, that built, for example, I know on, on the north side of Dublin, up around Stony Batter and that, you had all those houses built by the employer for the employees. But one element to it, whatever about the, the different circumstances now is, it sort of shows there's more to housing than the market, that this is a societal thing and not something we should just be leaving to the market. That's true. And I think that's a very good example of, of what that family did down there. And in a way, it's a bit like what Father Harry Bowen did. You know, he, he's down mm. in Clare. Rural resettlement. Yes. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we're in such a rush to do things. We don't actually use some of the experience that's there. And I think that would also hurt back to what I'm saying about the people who don't fit in. Outsiders, we'll call them. And they are, that is right throughout the, the developed world. And I remember meeting a psychiatrist. I was in Brussels for something years and years ago. I'm not on the, I, I'm not going around to all these places abroad. But I was walking along the street with him and I was describing, actually I was describing Pauline, the woman who died with the Kerry man sleeping rough exactly 30 years ago this month. And uh, I was describing her to him and he said, oh, I know her. And I thought, oh, have you been to Dublin? But what he was describing, that he was actually meeting the same type of person 
who was homeless in, in Europe. And then some time ago, there was a story of a woman uh, on the New York Times and the pigeons all around her. And then everyone was very good to her and nobody could come up with a solution. And then she disappeared. And that just reminds me, Michael, if I can just, or Mick, if I can just read a poem. Because here in mm. our own city, there is a woman I pass every day. And Anne is her name. And I meet her every morning. Very intelligent woman. Uh, sits there. People are very good to us. And she wrote a little bit and dropped it into Jeanette, my colleague at work the other day, what Christmas means to her. And maybe if I could just read a bit of it. Please, yeah. it captures it captures the difference between somebody just looking for a house where the problem would be solved. So she said, Christmas to me is just another day to give thanks and be able to open your eyes and step up and have a little ishka baha, good stuff. You can delete that if you want to. If I was to analyse the festivities, know that it's a little about competition and who has what and who worked harder and what is someone's status in society. But hey, for me, I know if I was at home, this would maybe bother me a little bit more. I'm now just happy really for the smiles and appreciation people give me and they give one another without any judgment. A few extra coins in the cups People taking the time to stop and ask what's up. The study of anthropology, some get stressed and some look amiss. And what about if we all just focus on what's important? And then she finishes off to say she, her father had died. She hadn't spoken to him for many years. And then after a lot of healing, she went home and it was the most wonderful time. And then she finishes off by saying, really, Jeanette, for me, it is the gift of forgiveness. And to me, the number one gift is on this earth. Well, you'll kill me, Jeanette. You have me crying now with love and our Lord's blessings. You know, there's something very profound about that from a woman who's on the streets. So I stopped to her this morning and we had a chat and she's gone into accommodation for a few nights. And she said, if somebody could just provide 10 nights accommodation with too many questions because she said, look, I, my finger is healed up. My arm is feel, healed up. I had an ulcer in my buttocks and that's healed up. But she said, when you go into places, you ask so many questions and you have to tick so many boxes. And she ca it captures what I think it is about being homeless. Absolutely. And that element... That last element you're speaking about there, Alice, and I've, I've heard you speak about it before, this idea that in the name of perhaps, well, ostensibly um, efficiency or whatever you want to call it, this bureaucracy that in some areas of life is necessary, but subjecting people to it whom are totally unsuited for that kind of, of, of processing, if you want to put it that way, that, that that's definitely something. And one other thing, sorry, you 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 mention again, and I see, and I agree with you completely. There's a misconception very often about people like that who are on the street. Because I remember on one occasion going out, I was writing a piece, and there was one gentleman, and um, the people I was going out with, they, they they were bringing him bringing food to various people on the streets. But this man, very well spoken. Um, he used to sleep on the streets. He insisted on there because he he felt he didn't fit in anywhere. Every day he went into the library in Trinity College and was engaged in various kinds of study in there. 
But again, it was somebody whom we have this preconceived notion about people you see and we've no concept of the various factors and forces that have led them to be living as they do and no concept whether or not that's how they, they, they see themselves that they should be living. It's interesting, Mick, because you were saying about this year. Now, one of the things we had hoped to do this year was have some type of seminar. And I had a word with uh, former High Court Judge Garrett Sheehan, who I would know for years, and asked him would he kind of chair it and would he get involved with us. But of course, the pandemic arrived and, and that ceased. And we've had two education projects over the years, and we are thinking of maybe running them again on the theme of the outsider. Now, the outsider could be somebody in your class, on your road, in your church, could have a religion, could have no religion, could have uh, dreadlocks, could be anything. And it could be somebody who will end up being a millionaire, or it could be somebody who's going to end up sleeping uh, uh, on the side of the canal. And it's interesting now, because we are now beginning to see people who participated in that program when they were younger and last week we went down I listened back to a podcast I did with you before and we could actually just press the button and replay it Mick because things don't change that much but one of the things I mentioned in it that we had met the guard the commissioner and actually a short time afterwards he arranged for me to go down to Templemore and I went down and I met the, the students and you always feel they're just so young now. And we always knew the guards as big fellas. They were always men and they were always crew, <laughs> and they were always from the country. And of course, but it was amazing experience because they were all so enthusiastic and they were young. And we were pointing out to them, we're not here to speak about statistics, but we're here to just tell you what it's like for that man or woman there in a sleeping bag, you're called to move on because very often they're the ones who are called when there's a problem. And of course they have to focus on what they have to do. Mm. And just the other day, a guard who had spent two weeks on his emplacement came up from Carlo. Uh, he's working over Christmas and he just dropped in and it was interesting because sometimes you don't know if, if what you have said made an impact but he was able to point out to me someone he met on that visit 12 years ago and say, who is he or where is he or what did he do with his life? So often I, I was also thinking two things that happened. Luca Bloom had uh, wrote a beautiful song. There were two songs that struck me this year. One was the beauty of everyday things. It's almost about the simplicity of, and often the simple things are the ones you can't get across. Even it's like saying to somebody, look, you got that sleeping bag, so maybe just fold it up. Don't leave it for someone else to fold it up. But we kind of can't, we're in such a rush, I think, to, to solve homelessness and the housing problem should be sorted, that we're ignoring these very people who are maybe saying something to us, or they are saying something, about how we're all living our lives. Very true. And it's very interesting, Alice, you mentioned about going down to Templemore because that to me is a, a great thing because young Gardy, and I mean, the, you know, the, the, there's an argument they're cocooned down there away and you come out with a particular thing. But when, when somebody like yourself comes in there, it gives them a chance to view people in a very human way than might otherwise be the case. And they're able to reach their own instincts in that respect. It's, it's a very positive thing in fairness to Drew Harris. And I think also I was doing it in a non-threatening way. 
I wasn't going down as an expert. I was going down to share my views. And Lisa, who works with me, came down with me. But also I was able to talk to them about sport. I was able to pick out one of the great Prairie hurlers. But sadly, I wasn't ringing them this year to say, well, I know, come on, you've enough of them. (laughs) (laughs) But... you know, it's it, we we need to be even. I, I find very often that lectures are so they're so sanitized, and the whole debate is so sanitized about what is life about. And very often, the people we're talking about now are the people who really are kind of challenging us to look at kind of what we are we living, how are we caring for one another. You know, it's very easy to tick the box. And even I made a submission to the Lord Mayor's Crime Forum, and. There was a mad rush for the Lord Mayor, you know, to get it out and do it in, in a certain length of time and present it to the minister. Now, I mean, they mean well, but very often there is a terrible disconnect between the people who are making the plans and the people I'm talking about. And you see, it's also become very easy to label people mentally ill. And if you label someone mentally ill, it means you think a prescription will soon their problems or the psychiatrist will. And we know from generations, people who were institutionalized because they were different and uh, the sad history of all of that. And I can remember that meeting people from the institutions. But now we have a situation where there is actually no place for somebody to go and somebody who may be very seriously mentally ill. You know, there are no beds. But everyone is just in their own little cocoon, dealing with whatever label they've been given. And for instance, if you're talking about um, nursing, I remember saying to somebody in hospital, well, look at that poor man. He was waiting to have his toenails done, but we couldn't get the chiropodist. No, it wasn't their job. You know, we have a terrible, yeah. in the name of progress, we're, we're kind of putting everyone into a box. And I think that's dehumanising the people who are delivering services as well. Alice, do you think that the pandemic, and it has been horrendous, and for those who've, people who've been bereaved, people who've lost their lives, people who've been very ill, people who've suffered economic hardship, particularly those in, in, in the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder, but do you think, has there been anything in it that we have, in any way as a society, been given a chance to pause and reevaluate somewhat along the lines you're talking about? Or, or do you think we'll just pass on and we're back under starter's orders again? Mick, I try not to be cynical. I'm, but, I mean, I got on the bus now today coming home and I saw a number of people on the bus standing and I'm no spring chicken and they weren't either. And I saw a number of people who totally ignored them and also got on the bus and sat down on a seat where it was very clear they shouldn't sit there. Because really, I think if we're talking about the pandemic, isn't it about how we respect each other? Isn't it about we all grow up to wash our hands? You don't cough in someone's face. You don't overcrowd them. You certainly don't throw your dirty masks and gloves on the street. They're all over the street. And that's not the problem of the council. That's the problem of the people who are doing it. But I think if anything is to come, and I think I see some people struggling. I mean, we have to, our scientists and our doctors, and they are working so hard. And I think it behoves all of us to listen to them. I mean, I think we'll be heading for another lockdown in January, the way things are going. But interesting today, you know, an awful lot of people came in to us. We have wonderful supporters who call every year and not one of them would come past the gate and they were all wearing masks. 
and they were all very acutely aware of the dangers. But I think, and, and I, I feel sorry for people who've lost their businesses, and I know there's a lot of talk about the pubs, but there are family pubs where in rural Ireland particularly, and in parts of Dublin, where particularly single men go in and they might only sit there even over a pint or they might just have, a, you know, a conversation. And, you know, we're in such a hurry to to make everything nice and neat that I think there's a great day. Like even, you know, we were all called cocooners. I mean, you know, they meant well, but the labels were flying around the place. So if we were to learn, and of course the researchers are coming out of the woodwork now. Uh, so are they going to re- do the research that's required? And I think that's the research is should be based on the question you just posed now. What have we learned for this or will we learn anything from it? And I think also here there's a huge one of the things that I've been doing during the the pandemic is I get home and I I watch uh, the doll today in the doll. You must be been hard up for something to watch there, Alice. <laughs> but then I usually end up listening to Tip FM for an hour with country and western <laughs> music. <laughs> that suits the soul. But I think we have to learn something from this. And I think one of the things we're learning about it is uh, particularly you see small businesses flourishing as well, you know, doing things maybe in a different way. Innovating, yeah. I do think we have created a gap between rural Ireland and urban Ireland. And I think uh, some of the good ideas will come out of rural Ireland. Yes, and there could be some re-evaluating in terms of the way we work. Um, if, if it becomes more convenient for people to work all or most or even some of the time from at home, um, perhaps you might see people moving back towards the, 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 the rural areas. Um, Christmas, Alice, how will that be now for, first of all, the people who call into you? How, how, do you? how do they get through it? Some people don't want to know it's Christmas at all. And this has always been the case. Now, years ago, one person used to come in. He was from Scotland and I was the nearest to where we were working. And I used to go in to meet him. The last number of Christmases, we had an awful lot of people coming in. But we don't work on Christmas Day. We don't work at weekends, even though we'd be on the phone maybe and doing different things. But because we don't want to create dependency. But people, yesterday I was looking out and we're a very, very small agency and that's why we can only allow a few people in. And we always uh, have a candle lighting in the fireplace. We're not, uh, we respect everyone's religion or their right to have no religion if they don't want to, that's their right. So we don't impose any political or religious views on people. But we always put up a tiny crib we always have a candle on the table at Christmas time and we put up Christmas cards and we always have lyric where you have the nice music. I mean, the one piece of music that I think I find myself singing that going along the street these days, even though I can't sing, is Brian Kennedy singing, I wish I had someone to love me. Did you lis- ever listen to it? Oh, listen to it. Barney McKenna sings it or sang it. But listen to Brian Kennedy. You would listen to it forever. So we have lyric on with the love, with the Christmas carols and all of that. And we try to keep it normal, as normal as it can be. Some people won't mention Christmas at all. But yesterday I was looking out at two men. One of them is, he, he was born in Russia. He lived in Lithuania. And a few years ago, uh, Monsignor Ontine, who was the army chaplain, happened to drop in. 
And, and all, he wears his collar, so everyone knew he was from a religious background, and also the Dean of St. Patrick's who always wears his. But anyway, uh, Peter, who sleeps out all the time, won't go in anywhere. And when he saw the men with the collar, he took out a little crucifix from under the only possessions he had and cried and cried and cried. And when Alan, who worked with this guy during the year, he cried as well. But yesterday I looked out and he was sitting there holding a cup of coffee and he just looking at the goldfish. And across from him was another man. They couldn't speak the same language. And he was looking at the goldfish. And you just wonder what was going on in their heads. Because one of the things we won't have this year, I know the people who busk and busk a lot for Simon will be on the late, late, I gather. And they used to all be busking in Grafton Street. And I had to stay away from Grafton Street because I couldn't cope with the crowds. Uh, but this year I might walk up Grafton Street because it might be a little, there might be a little bit more space. It's a lovely image that, Alice, the, the two men of different languages and there's obviously a, a communal warmth there I suppose just another human being there that they, on, on some level they feel that yeah and I think that's what we tried and one of the good things for us that has come out of this now we constantly ask and we have a great board of directors and you see we weren't able to have our board meetings so we're very lucky we got a room uh, to have them in and then we had the last few on Zoom <laughs> I never thought we'd be Zooming have you had to restrict the numbers coming in this Christmas, Alice? Yes, we've had to cut back to just three in at a time. We see one of the good things too about that, if people are staying in services, we would encourage them to use those services because those services are costing a lot of money to run. So, but people use come, do come to us for different reasons. And I think one of the reasons they come in is we're not rushing to pry into people's affairs. We accept them as they are. Uh, and, and I think that's very important. And the other thing, a very simple thing, since 2006, we made our first submission for public showers in this city. Any capital city should have public showers. And uh, we would have, the other day, I think, did I mention this already? A social worker rang us uh, to know she had somebody with her. This man was living in accommodation in a flat. He was attending a doctor. He obviously had an appointment. And could he come to us? And we said, no. We're here to work with people who are on the streets. And if people haven't got the services, you should see that they get the services. So we've been saying that for, I think, years, for a lifetime. We made a submission for public showers. That's what it was in 2006. The next time there were local government elections, we made it again. Last year, we didn't even bother. Why do you think there's resistance to that, Alice? I think people don't understand. If you don't look after the basics, how can you stop? infection or other things down the road. I mean, for ages, we had the problem with public toilets. Suddenly, when the pandemic arrived and we were campaigning for it, they were suddenly able to put up public toilets. They're there in Stevens Green. They're down the other side of town. They were able to do it. I think we have a great capacity in this country to give every reason why it shouldn't be done rather than getting on and doing it. And often there's so much red tape and so much bureaucracy uh, around, I mean, the other day you now I, I met a man who had been doing a soup run for years, and he told me they had to do a course with the HSE on how to wash their hands. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I think that says it all. I mean, we have men and women who come into us, and it does mean that 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 either Mark or, or Lisa will say to them, "Come on, you have to spend a bit of time now washing your hands, and this is soap and that, and put the paper in the bin," but. I think 
I think we're nearly afraid to do the simple things. We're afraid to acknowledge. And I think maybe that's one of the good things to come out of the pandemic. We've spent millions on encouraging people to visit older people, uh, to do this, that and the other. And now, now we're telling them to stay away from them. And that's where I think the postman, we're hearing about the frontline workers. And a young uh, guard, I actually happen to know his grandmother, who was a very well-known businesswoman here in Dublin, and I, I didn't know it. Do you know that lovely store, Cleo's? They have one in Kerry as well, in Killorblin. Oh, yes, yes. Well, Tomás would be Kitty's uh, grandson. And he's a lovely, lovely guard. And he was in with us. And it, it is really the, the simple things and working with people at that level. But you cannot get that true to the powers that be. Everything has to be programmed, has to be, a box has to be ticked. Now, I know you have to have health and safety. And we're very clear on all that. You have to have all of these rules. But have we reached the stage that we're afraid to even, I mean, we'll never hug someone again. Uh, we know that has sorted out a lot of the problems. You don't hug somebody, you don't. I was talking about this man having to do a course to wash his hands. You know, what is the next course we'd be asked to do? No, I'm yeah. not, I don't want to ridicule and I would never people who are out there because washing your hands and all that is so important. But I would have a worry about the younger generation that they will be really nearly afraid to do something or they won't even know that these things are important. And I think these are the words of wisdom from our poets and from uh, people. And I think the people in the media too, very often there's a big headline and that's the end of it. And of course, the media people are struggling to because of jobs and all of that. But without the media, we would have nothing. And, and But I think there are issues that I think need to be addressed after all of this. Absolutely. And tell me, Alice, yourself, what do you do for Christmas? Well, I've got my supply of books in. I, I love going to the carols in St. Patrick's on Christmas Eve, but of course there'll be no carols. And it's awful really to see St. Patrick's because they've been very good to us and they're doing the roof. But there's something about the carols that brings people together. And even there was a lovely, in the, the Catholic Church down here in Beechwood Avenue, the Redmines, the Renless Singers, every year had a wonderful event. The church was packed. They had young and old. They had the little, little ones of four singing carols. And then they had, it was absolutely marvellous. So all of that has stopped. And I think that is a terrible shame. But what I will do over Christmas, I will uh, get out walking. I'll read. I'll have a glass of wine. I'll put on music and, and say, well, that was a Dickie Rock said, what's another year? <laughs> Our, uh, Johnny Logan. Oh, Johnny Logan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Another year, absolutely, Alice, but a strange year and hopefully one where we'll be able to return to some form of normality, as, as you say, hopefully return in a way that we might bring with us slightly changed attitudes in some respects and a bit more reflection and a bit more appreciation perhaps for what we have. I, I think so. And a little bit more res more respect for each other. And maybe, mm. I, I think one of the things they've managed to do, they've tried to, I mean, ageism now. I mean, that's alive and well after the pandemic because we're all seen as useless cocooners who have nothing to offer. And um, 
Brian Power was a priest in the diocese who died a number of years ago. And he was one of the first who went over to America to look at the drug problem. And he spent his earlier years working in the ESB. And one of the poems, now I don't have it right beside me, but it was about, you know, they have older people. They think they should be pulling crackers and putting on hats and all of that. But what we owe to the younger people is to tell them, what it was like and support them and encourage them because young people are marvellous and they're full of ideas and of course they have much more energy than the rest of us. But um, I remember going out to a fee-paying school a number of years ago and I went out and I must say I felt slightly uncomfortable because I was meant to be talking about go home and ask your parents for plenty money to sort out the problems of homelessness. So I said, shock horror, I said, look it, now you have brothers playing rugby, you have your sisters out there, you're wasting good resources. Why don't you say now, look, we'll collect the jeans and we'll wash them. If you iron jeans, I think you could or you may not. Uh, and they will help somebody who is, is sleeping rough, but you are also recycling. It happened once because the idea, people feel it must be all about money. When in fact, it's much more, I think, about having discussions. And one of the things that I missed out on this year, which was a terrible shame, there was to be an opportunity in DCU to meet journalists looking at homelessness and how we address the issues. But of course, that was scrapped. Uh, so we need kind of town hall meetings with not the usual suspects, you know, talking to themselves. We need to enter, to get people to just, and I think the media have a huge role to play in this. You know, even in those songs I mentioned there about the simplicity, about not being loved, about not being wanted, about, see, about seeing somebody who's different as being mentally ill and expecting the psychiatrist to solve all the problems. And maybe not listening to, uh, to one of the things that we have learned from this is we can hear the birds again. We can see yes. the blue sky. But maybe I don't want to go all green because uh, I don't think that would solve the problem either. No, but I think one thing I'd have to say, Alice, is um, that term, uh, a useless cocooner, I think um, in terms of my experience, in terms of the experience of anybody who's ever come across you, it's probably the very last term in the world that one would ever associate with you and the work you do, in all fairness. But Alice, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we hope you have a great Christmas. Have a great Christmas for all the people who visit the Alice Leahy Trust as well. And thank you for um, for your wisdom. Thanks very much, Alice. And thank you, Mick, for giving me the opportunity because I think unless people get an opportunity to express their... And an awful lot of people don't. Uh, and I'm very lucky that I do. But I think the media have a hugely important role to play as we come out of the pandemic. OK, thanks, Alice. And thank you, folks, for listening. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Uh, you can get us on all the usual platforms. We have a couple of special podcasts next week, but from this regular slot, uh, I'd just like to say a very happy and this year in particular, a very safe Christmas to everybody. See you soon, folks.